Welcome to The Slow Reader, a podcast about books. I'm your host, Steve. And this episode, I am talking about Heads by David Osborne. About the book, it's uh, published December 1st, 1985. And here is the back of the book summary. More shocking than coma, more terrifying than the terminal man, Heads is a thriller that goes deeper into the horrifying future of medicine than any novel has dared to go before. In an ultimate step into terror, David Osborne explores the murky boundaries between volunteer and victim, ambition and ruthlessness, life and death, and what begins as highly classified research by a team of responsible doctors ends as a deadly game in which any of the players can be condemned to a purgatory more ghastly than hell. Some quick notes about the summary. Uh, the Terminal Man was a 1972 Michael Crichton book who himself referred to it, it as his least favorite work. Coma probably refers to the 1977 novel by Robin Cook. And Osborne is also the author of a book called Open Season, best summarized by this review from Leslie on Goodreads. Three former college buddies meet every year for an annual hunting trip at their secluded lodge. For the past seven years, they have kidnapped a young couple, forced them to commit humiliating acts, and then after a short head start, they begin hunting them down. Uh, from what you'll hear about later in the review, that sounds on par with Heads. I also found Heads listed as the Headhunters on Kindle, published in 2017 when searching for it online. So if you're unable to find it, try using that title. It has quite a different book cover that looks like it was put together as a cut and paste job compared to the 1985 cover. Had I realized that these books were identical, I might have paid for the ebook rather than buy a physical copy. Uh, speaking of which, that's how I found the book. Uh, I first found it at a yard sale on Manitoulin Island over the summer. However, I decided not to buy it at the time. I realized after the fact that I should have bought it, so I bought a used copy from Amazon. It came from somewhere in California, but it looks like it originated from Alberta, Canada. I'd be interested in following that trail sometime, but uh, not today. So getting back to the book, some basic stats. There are 294 pages in the main story. There are 36 chapters with a prologue. And there is a preview of the book Evidence of Love by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson, apparently a true crime novel, at the end of the book, plus an order form for more Bantam books. So my reading timeline, uh, I started reading Heads September 10th and finished reading it October 23rd. Depending on how you calculate it, that's 44 days, good for approximately 6.7 pages per day. Or by chapter count, that is 1.2 chapters per day. So I have some questions to answer. Of all the things that I want to cover in this review, I want to make sure that I answer these that I have about the novel, partly based on the back of the book. Are the murky boundaries between volunteer and victim ambition and ruthlessness, life and death really explored in this novel? Two, did I feel that any character was in any real danger at any point in the story? And further to question two, did the story and setting seem at least believable? In other words, could I suspend my level of disbelief? Somewhat related, is this future of medicine really something that was considered to be plausible in 1985? I'll circle back to these questions at the end of the review to provide a sort of summary of my thoughts, both while I was reading and after I finished the book. Up until this point, the podcast has been spoiler-free for heads, and while I'm not going to cover off the entire book as I've done previously, consider anything past this point to have potential spoilers, if you were intending on reading the book. So what's this book really about? Well, the back of the book's synopsis is probably one of the vaguest descriptions of a book that I've ever read, yet it, combined with the cool cover, still managed to spark my interest. 
Still, it's not very descriptive as to what actually happens in the book, so here is a short summary. The Borg Harrison Research Institute is conducting highly classified research experiments for the government or the military. To be honest, I'm not entirely clear who is funding this research. Borg Harrison scientists are recruiting volunteer patients who are about to die, those with terminal diseases, life-threatening physical problems and the like, and offer them extended life as life-supported heads. No body, just their head attached to a console. In exchange, they sever all contact with their previous life and remain hidden away in a research laboratory. One researcher, Susan McCullough, joins Borg Harrison and starts working on the project, although she's unaware that the project is dealing with live severed heads. Eventually, she stumbles upon the secret and must tread carefully, or else she could end up a severed head herself. So that's what's going on at the service level. I'll get into some more of the plot details as I talk about the book, but I wanted to introduce the main characters at least. So here's who we're dealing with. John Fleming is a brilliant scientist and youngest ever medical director of the University Hospital Brain Research Laboratory in Washington. Susan McCullough, another scientist and John's assistant, which is why she's brought on to work with Borg Harrison later in the novel. Michael Burgess, the lead scientist and surgeon on the project. Catherine Blair, a psychologist working on the project and is closely involved with Michael. And Al Luzinski, Luzinski, I'm not sure which how to pronounce that. Uh, he's an anesthesiologist at Borg Harrison and apparently has a talent to perfectly imitate other people's voices, which pays off only in one scene to manufacture a tense moment. And finally, Tony Soong, Michael's assistant in surgery. There are some smaller characters in the novel as well, but those are the main players. All of the lead doctors and scientists all seem to be considered experts in their field, and they also know how to party, and that's how we're first introduced to them. Oh, and they're also all extremely good-looking. Somehow, Osborne manages to give them a different look while still making them out to have perfect bodies. I guess in a way it worked for me because I was able to get different mental pictures of the characters. And uh, that's another thing, though. Osborne seemed to have a penchant for describing Catherine's Titian Titian hair. I'd never heard of that before, and apparently it's a brownish shade of red hair, often confused with auburn hair. I thought it was overused in the book at first, but the descriptor came up at another point in the novel to create a somewhat helpful context. So I would again conclude that in terms of physical descriptions, Osborne was able to differentiate the characters very well. However, that's where the characters done well bit stops. I felt that the personalities and motivations of the characters were all surface level with very little depth into any of them. And the characters also portray some viewpoints very much rooted in the 1980s. The men in the novel are seem to be powerful and the women are forced to use their gender to advance their careers or ambitions. Catherine in particular is portrayed as cold and calculating and the few times we get limited third person narration from her perspective they don't do very much to cast a better light. She's basically there to be a manipulative, power-hungry antagonist for Susan, the lead character of the novel. And about Susan, uh, it's more than a little disappointing that a lot of her actions are governed by her overwhelming attraction to men in the novel. The book starts with her and John Fleming together, but when he dies early in the novel, it devastates her. This is understandable. I mean, I can't imagine going through losing a loved one like that. But not too long after John's death, she becomes overwhelmingly attracted to Michael and many of her decisions in the novel until probably the last third of the book are only in conflict because she is so attracted to Michael. Part of the attraction is rooted in his physical appearance, but they have very frequent mind-blowing sex in the middle of the novel, some of which is described in somewhat amusing detail, but 
mostly just referred to in passing. The way it's written, Susan seems to be very much controlled by her relationship with Michael and finds it hard to think straight. I guess you could say that I wasn't impressed with the characters and how they were written. Luckily, the story moved along at a pretty good pace and was interesting enough that I could look past the poor characterization. And I actually enjoyed the way the information was slowly revealed as I read along. It wasn't a mystery novel, so I didn't feel cheated that plot details were withheld behind the scenes, so to speak. After John Fleming dies in a horrible car accident, we mostly follow Susan's point of view with a few glimpses into the other characters' actions. Most of the information that we need comes from Susan's limited viewpoints, and we really only check in with the other characters so that we know what's going on at the surface. Osborne seems deliberately vague with what they're talking about, uh, even though we can kind of infer what's really happening, but that's okay. As uh, Susan moves out of her deep depression due to John's passing and starts to work for Borg Harrison, we start to get some more details revealed, both from Susan's perspective and from the other characters, and it mainly follows at the same pace as Susan's revelations. For example, once Susan joins Borg Harrison, we start to get some more details about squabbling between the scientists and the source of their funding. Not too long after that, while frustratingly coming to an impasse in her work, Susan accidentally discovers John is technically still alive in the form of a disembodied head connected to a console. And he's not the only one. There are five or six active volunteers in a restricted floor of the Institute. Once Susan finds out what the project she's working on is truly about, that's when the information just starts flowing. We get some more insight into just how close this project is to failure and the inner machinations of the Research Institute as they try to figure out how to minimize any damage potentially caused by Susan's discovery of the heads. The solution is to give her full access, and as Susan learns more and works more closely with John, more and more is revealed. We even get point-of-view chapters from the heads themselves, which in itself is interesting. Uh, so I'll get a little bit more on that later. At one point, they also go through the surgery involved in severing a head from the body and keeping it alive. Although in that surgery, there is an error and the head dies anyway. Eventually, we learn more about the nature of the volunteers. They're supposed to be those that are basically dead already, either a terminal disease that was almost that has almost run its course or some other reason that their bodies will cause them to die. But it's revealed that Catherine is fudging things. An unknown number of volunteers could be people who are really healthy and not close to death at all. It's implied that John Fleming's signature was forged while he was being worked on in the hospital after his accident. The revelation about the source of the heads is actually very important because it lays the foundation of the threat to Susan's life that she could very easily become a head on a console. In fact, that's the main conflict at the end of the novel. John dies, and in order to deal with knowing too much, Catherine and Michael conspire to put Susan's head on a console. I actually wasn't sure what direction the book would take and thought it was possible that Osborne could actually do this to the protagonist. Spoilers, though, she makes it as far as the prep table for surgery. Part of the prep process includes shaving the head of the volunteer and drawing incision lines across the neck. This is what leads to a fairly cringe-inducing scene. Susan escapes and eventually encounters Catherine in a locker room. She knocks her out cold, and anesthesiologist Al walks in to find her unconscious on the floor. His first thought is not to help her out. Far from it. No, his first thought is that he'll never get another chance to have Catherine in such a vulnerable position again. His second thought is that he could do whatever he wanted to and take advantage of her. The only reason he doesn't take off his own pants is that he realizes he has no time and would get caught. So he hides her hair and draws the incision lines across her neck 
and figures that no one would be able to tell the difference between her and Susan without hair and naked from the neck down. I guess he was right because it's Catherine that ends up on the surgery table when the details of the program are revealed to the media, but too late to stop the surgery in progress. That's probably the only spot in the novel that I thought could have been ripped right out. Some highlights from the book. So I dog-eared some pages while I was reading because there were some passages where there that I wanted to highlight. And here they are. Al Luzinski, wearing an undersized bikini, completely at odds with his round, bearded face and big, bearish body. Um, so was the bikini an often used term for Speedos in the 80s? That's quite the weird image that I got from this quote. And uh, in chapter 10, Catherine is going to the Borg Harrison headquarters to meet the board chairman. And Osborne describes the house in great length. His wording for when she doesn't find them, though, is odd. Catherine found him not there. I think it would have been a bit better to say Catherine didn't find him there. I don't know. The wording was just a little a little odd. So in chapter 20, uh, this isn't a particular line, but this chapter was unique in that it was the first viewpoint for John as a head, and it was neat to get inside of his head, no pun intended. But then he also goes on to describe the surgery process. Um, and then chapter 23 was also from the head's viewpoint and what goes on after hours. So I thought... Those were kind of neat to experience. All right. So getting back to the questions I asked earlier, let's start with number one. Are the murky boundaries between volunteer and victim, ambition and ruthlessness, life and death really explored in this novel? I would say no. Uh, That quote implies to me that there are current processes in medical sciences, current in 1985 at least, that would be explored. It's true that the line between volunteer and victim blur in the novel, but I don't think they were really explored in the meaning I'm thinking about. As far as I can tell from the book, it's clear that the research project started with good intention and and was all proper, at least as proper as severing heads and keeping them alive could be. But eventually, as they started experiencing problems, keeping heads alive or useful and running out of viable candidates to volunteer, the board director basically tells Catherine, don't tell me what you're doing and I won't ask when it comes to being creative with procuring new subjects. Once we have that topic broached by the characters, it seems like the novel tailspins into creative new ways Catherine can find new volunteers. So this murky boundary is pretty much just a service level feature of the book. Did I feel that any character was in any real danger at any point in the story? Well, yes, I mentioned earlier that I thought Susan could potentially end up a severed head on a console at the end of the book. And I guess by direct correlation, Catherine was for sure in danger at the end. And, uh, The book was at least realistic that way in terms of not protecting characters or pulling punches. So further to question two, did the story and setting seem at least believable? In other words, could I suspend my level of disbelief? I don't truly know much about research projects or hospitals, but I had a hard time believing in the characters. They all seemed to be partying and sleeping with each other and were all perfect specimens of the human race, except for an avuncular old man working at the Institute, who made me think of Ducky from NCIS. But yes, um, I suspended my disbelief a little bit while reading the book. I don't mean that as I was as I was reading, I believed that what they were doing was truly possible. I just mean that there wasn't really anything in the book, the almost rape scene aside, that made me stop reading and say, well, there's no way that could happen. In the universe of the novel, I thought, 
it was believable. So somewhat related, is this future of medicine really something that was considered to be plausible in 1985? This one I need uh, to research a little bit. Unfortunately, it's not something that comes too easily in a Google search. I think I'd have to deep dive and read some essays, but uh, I'm not really interested in doing that, nor do I have the time. I guess I picked a bad question to ask in retrospect. I did find, though, some breakthroughs in medical treatments in the early 80s, and they included things like vaccines, MRI scanners, and apparently a surgical robot. Digging a little deeper, apparently artificial skin was discovered and developed in the late 70s and early 80s, but also in 1981 was the first successful combined heart and lung transplant. Since the novel features what I would call a head transplant from a body to a machine, I looked up some more transplant firsts in the 1980s, or near the 1980s. Here's a short list. 1963, the first human liver transplant, as well as first human lung transplant. In 1966, the first human pancreas transplant. And in 1967, the first human heart transplant. So I suppose if you were to look at what was happening in medical technology, I'd argue that you could speculate the kind of procedure described in heads would be at least plausible. I'm rather impressed by the research that David Osborne seems to have done in this field. So wrapping things up, overall, I scored this book two stars on Goodreads. Here was my one paragraph review. The characters act on a mostly surface level in this book, but the plot was interesting enough to keep me going. A lot of 80s viewpoints, very obvious in the characters too. Obviously, I've done a bit more thinking about the novel since then and went a little further in depth, but I still stand by the two-star review. It's a very disposable novel, and I'll probably forget about it in years to come and never reread it. The characters are not at all memorable, and some of the secondary characters are very cartoon-like and have exaggerated traits. If you want to read this book, find a very cheap copy, free if you can, but don't spend a lot of time hunting it down. All right, so what's next on the podcast? I'm not entirely sure what's coming next, but uh, I'm currently reading The MVP Machine concurrently with Master and Apprentice. If you're not familiar with either title, don't worry about it for now. Uh, what order I re review them in depends entirely on when I finish them, but I would like to time it so that I can cover a Star Wars title in December for when The Rise of Skywalker comes out. I think I'm a bit too far removed from finishing my Dune reread to do a proper episode for it. Uh, I'd almost need to reread it all over again, and I'm not going to do that. Uh, suffice it to say that I picked up on some new elements in the story that I'd missed when reading before. And when I was rereading it, I was also taking some leadership and management courses at the same time for work. Um, so I picked up on a lot of leadership themes in Herbert's writing, and uh, some of it was basic stuff like how to be a good leader. But also on another level, it's it's uh, some themes where it's not good to blindly trust charismatic leadership. I also discovered that there were some changes that happened to Paul that I remember happening much later in the book, but in fact occurred early on. And I think part of this is because I most recently watched the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries before I reread the book. So maybe the visual medium ingrained some things in my head more easily than the book did. I think the next book that I'm going to reread is Name of the Wind, but that one I probably won't start until the new year because I would like to get through some more new books this year before starting anything I've read before. Well, anyways, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at Stephen underscore G. Let me know what you think of this new format. Does it work better than previous episodes? I personally like it a lot better. Um, and the full review text will be on www.noformatblog.ca later this week. And you can find previous episode audio at slow-reader.pinecast.co. And finally, the music intro at the start of this episode was Dungeon Dance 
by Sublustrix Nox, available on gemendo.com. Thanks for listening.